You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Eric Norman, the author of the book Grokking Simplicity from Manning Publications and the host of the Eric Norman podcast. He's one of the few people I know who's had production experience writing both Haskell and Clojure. And today we get into a gigantic food fight about static and dynamic types. Just kidding. We talk about his experiences with both and actually get into a lot of specific details about the differences between the two languages, not just from a typing perspective, but also from the perspective of ecosystem, culture, and more. And now, Haskell and Clojure in production. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right. So I wanted to start off by bringing up again a little like conversation we had over like Twitter DM a while back. And this is based on somebody else's tweet that's now been deleted. So I can't, <laughs> I don't know what the okay. original wording was, but I think I'm going to try and recreate it. I think what they were asking was, is there anybody out there who agrees with both of the following statements? Number one, I have used Haskell professionally before. And number two, I also think that most of the bugs that I run into, like a type checker would not have helped or, or would not have caught them. Because a lot of people seem to agree with one of those two things. Like they'll say, I don't think a type checker is that helpful because the bugs that I run into are, are not type errors. And then a lot of people say, I've used Haskell, but I disagree with that professionally, as opposed to like, you know, just like a weekend project or something. So I've used it in anger. And it seems like pretty hard to find somebody who agrees with both of those, at least to some extent. And obviously there's nuance there. Right, it's not like, right. you know, anyone's like a hard line, you know, one way or the other. But it seemed like you, you were the first person I talked to who actually seemed like you've had Haskell experience professionally. I think you said like two years, something like that. Yeah, about two years. Mm -hmm. And also like your experience is that it's not, the type checking is not that essential as far as like, it doesn't catch as many bugs as maybe like others would say. Is that a fair, I don't know, assessment of your <laughs> perspective on it? Yeah. So, man, this is a really complex answer. So I have to like be a little caveat. So I worked in Haskell from 2010 to 2013 about. Okay. So this was ooh, almost 10, I mean, yeah, more than 10 years ago. Sure. So I haven't done it professionally since then. And it might have changed. You know, I haven't been keeping up so much with it. At that point, it was like, well, like 20 plus years old. Yeah, um, so right. I like think... the basics of the language are probably the same, haven't yeah. changed, but the ecosystem has probably changed a lot. And, you know, I worked on one code base. And so I had to figure out like, what was the language? What was the code base I was working on? And what was my difficulty with understanding it, right? So I had to really separate these out because I left that job with a kind of negative view of Haskell. Interesting. And I went back to Clojure, which I preferred. Now, I know the, the first thing people are going to think of is like types versus untyped. No, no one, no one would go there. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive right in. So my overall feeling about the whole discussion is that we're not listening to each other, <laughs> is that we're not empathizing with the person and we put them in a box and then we don't have to listen to them. I experience it myself when I say something about types. People are like, oh, you're a closure guy. That's why you don't like types. Like, I didn't say I didn't like types. I said one specific factual thing <laughs> and we can discuss that whether it's true or not, but don't just throw it out because I don't, you think I don't like types, right? Right. I do like types. I've found that there was a lot of benefit from the static type discipline of Haskell. Okay. So I want to be really clear about that. Yeah. 
I find that I'm and my and the people I work with in Clojure are not making buggier software. Mm-hmm. Compared to like people writing it or like your experience with, with uh, Haskell. With Haskell, right. yeah. So like I'm trying to be very specific, like Clojure versus Haskell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I know it's so easy to go abstract, especially when you get on the defensive. And you're like, oh, but type systems can do that. Yeah, but can Haskell's type system do that? I, I can't attack types in general because there's always some type system somewhere that can handle this thing. And I think that that's one of the things I don't like about the discussion is, you know, it often goes too abstract. Like, you're anti-types. No, I'm anti this particular type. <laughs> like, <I don't... laughs> oh, and that's like a callback to a discussion you had about Rich Hickey's talk. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like he talks about like a distinction between some type systems will let you do sort of like or types. Like you can say right. like, I have this or that. And he's a big fan of that. And yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Like type systems are, yes, you can technically broadly categorize them as one or the other. And there are certainly trends having to do with one or the other. But at the end of the day, if you're going to compare them, it's really much more useful to compare specific type systems. Right. But it's often not what people do because I'll say, oh, but I couldn't do this in Haskell, right? And they're like, oh, what you wanted was row typing. And like, well, yeah, but it doesn't have it. So like, I can't do that. Or someone will say, well, that's a type error. And I'm like, yeah, but not in Haskell. It couldn't detect that type error. So like, it doesn't, it's like calling it a type error. It's like a category error. like, tell me what language that's practical to use that would have done that. And like, maybe I would have chosen to switch, but probably not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm trying to come to the, this is a really complex thing. Yeah. I find that having worked in Haskell for two years, I could internalize a whole bunch, not all of it, of course. It's a big, you know, there's too much, but a whole bunch of the type discipline into my own being, my own way of thinking. And I can use that in closure, even though there's no checks, right? I know when I'm writing a function that I want to return a string no matter what. I also know closure programmers who will say, oh, I'll return a string or nil or maybe a number. And then I'm like, well, (laughs) you don't know what you've got anymore. And you're going to need an if statement somewhere else where the return value gets, you know, read to figure out what you got and what it means. Because now you're like totally outside of the context, right? I try to explain this to them and they don't understand so well. That's a really interesting perspective. It's familiar to me because at some point in my career, like the, the first professional functional programming that I did was basically what you just described. It wasn't closure, but it was coffee script. And essentially what I was doing was like sort of pretend I'm following Haskell's rules. That was kind of what, what I thought about it as in my head. So I'm like, okay, let's pretend I had to pick a specific type for this. And also let's pretend that I wasn't allowed to do side effects, except at some point I had to because you You don't have the same runtime. Even though I didn't have a compiler enforcing it, I would still try to follow those rules. Now, that's interesting, though. I I haven't heard many people talk about doing that specifically in Clojure. So I guess it makes sense that a lot of people would, not everybody would be on board with your way of doing that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just found it to be one of the the best things for keeping the bugs down, right? Uh So like, there's something there where like, I learned that by writing in Haskell and it forced me because I couldn't compile my code <laughs> if I yeah, didn't think right. ahead and like, will this compile? Like, well, I'm going to write it 
correctly, as close to correctly as I can the first time. So having gone through that, I find that I don't need it, right? But at the same time, I have to work on teams. And, you know, maybe I would want it if I was on a team because I want to make sure everybody else, like if, you know, if I was the lead of the team, right? I would think these people are not following a type discipline. So I would want that to force them to do it. And so it's sort of like, you know, me saying, yeah, types are really useful. It's useful to at least think about the types and have a strict discipline with them. But you don't need it to be part of the language, but it can be very helpful to be part of the language. So I'm not coming down either way on this. And I also think that there's more practical type systems out there now. You know, like TypeScript, I find is pretty good for the kinds of stuff I want to be doing. And so where I've gotten after all this like, you know, introspection is I think that what both sides need. So what Clojure needs and what Haskell needs, let's talk specifics. Clojure needs a very strong type system that's optional. So you can apply it to certain parts of your code because Clojure really thrives in a place where you have a lot of unknown unknowns. You don't know what data you're going to get back. And so you don't want to commit to a type yet. And also it's maybe not even typable, <laughs> right? You don't know. And, and for instance, there's an example dealing with a WordPress API. Like this is a PHP program generating JSON. There's no type discipline. And so sometimes you would get you know, a JSON object, sometimes you get a null, sometimes you get false or zero because in PHP, zero is equal to false, right? And so you can't say like, oh, here's the type of this. It's an unknown unknown. At any point, you might get a zero that you weren't expecting, right? And I know people say, oh, you can deal with that in Haskell. Yes, you can. But what you arrive at is basically Clojure's data model. (laughs) if you push it to the limit, right? And then Haskell, with its strict types, it is better when you do have a lot of known knowns, right? Or known unknowns. The known unknowns, any any of the known stuff, it's really useful to deal with because you can just put it in there. You can make a flexible type if you need it because you have known unknowns. And if you happen to know the type and you trust it, you can put it in there. And so what I think is both of them need the other side. Like in Clojure, sometimes I'm like, I have a lot of known knowns. I want to write it in the code so that it's checked for me by a logic engine. Like give me a type system just for those situations. Likewise, I think Haskell needs to have some way of dealing with these unknown unknowns by getting the data into the system. So you have a JSON type that's just like, I know it's JSON, it parses, but that's it. And then a bunch of routines that are probably partial functions for dealing with that. So when I say a partial function, I mean you can have a map function that can operate on arrays and it just errors on everything else, right? Yeah. And it deals with that JSON array, but everything else it fails on. So this is interesting. So the approach that I've used in Elm, and I know you can do this in Haskell, but there is a sort of a question of, you know, how much it's done. Like it's certainly quite popular to auto derive your JSON deserialization in Haskell and basically say like, here's my data structure. I want you to put something in here. And if it doesn't look exactly like that, 
than giving an error. And I totally get how if you're getting something where, let's say you don't have a well-defined schema, you're like, okay, this thing, it says it's going to give me back a string, but I've seen in practice that although that's what it says, sometimes it gives me back a null there, or sometimes it gives me back a zero instead of a false or, you know, stuff like that. You know that there exists hypothetically some schema conceptually in the world that can describe this thing, but you don't know what it is. And so you need to be resilient to that somehow. But I have seen a middle ground, as I would say, in like what Elm does. So in Elm, you specify these JSON decoders. And one of the things you can say is you can say, basically, this field can be one of these several different alternatives. And I don't know which one I'm going to get, but here's how I want to handle each of these. So you could say it could be zero or it could be false or it could be null. And if it's any of those, I want to handle all of those by turning it into a false or something. Right. Like that. Right. And so in my mind, that's a way of handling that. So then once it has been decoded, from then on, you have your normal Elm type and everything, you know, the type checker is, you're all all in the known knowns land and the type checker can be very helpful. Well, you're in a known unknown, right? So you know it's one of these, but you don't know which one until you do the pattern match, right? Okay. So in this case, I'm assuming that we don't care about preserving the original JSON. We're Uh just like, I just want to translate it into something I'm going to work with. Yeah. I don't care after I translated it, whether it started out as false or zero or whatever. I just need it to be in the format that I want to work yes, with. Yes, right. From then on. <laughs> right, 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 right. So in that world, once you've done that translation, it becomes everything is known. Right, right, right. right. You know, when it's coming over the wire, you don't know what it's going to be. But if you've written your decoder to be flexible to those different possibilities. Yeah. And I would even go as far as to say, if you really wanted to, you could you could get kind of extreme with it and just write some incredibly flexible decoder that's like, I will treat empty string as false and I will treat you yeah, know, right. empty array as right, false. Right, right, like right, For right, some right. reason, I, I probably wouldn't go that far, but you could do it. And from my perspective, that is how I really like to deal with that sort of like uncertainty is is right at the border, as opposed to like, you know, after I've turned it into my own data types, I'm like, let me resolve that. And if I uh, just centralize all my ambiguity resolution logic right in that decoder, and then once I've got it into my types, I'm like, cool, now the rest of my system works the way I like it to. And if I can't figure out a way to deal with whatever, you know, nonsense they've given me, then I'm going to fail right there. Sure. That's kind of where I've come at it. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I totally understand that. I think that there's another aspect of closure that's like orthogonal to the type versus untype, which is the the REPL-driven development. Right. We have a much more interactive view of, you know, interfacing with the outside world. And so we want to get it into the system as quickly as possible. And basically with as little translation as possible. Right. So we take that raw JSON and convert it into the data structures that maps and vectors and strings that we know how to deal with and then look at it what is it what did it give me right let me make let me try to write a decoder right and i think that there's a mindset that i didn't see in the haskell world of sort of trying to capture things like just one step too soon capture it in types one step too soon like let me get the raw thing i saw this a lot with like csv parsers and even stuff like the lib curl bindings that we were using. Now, again, this is more than 10 years ago now. So like it could all have changed, but like the CSV parser enclosure, all it does is gives you a list of vectors of uh-huh. strings. That's all the parser does because that's kind of all you can guarantee about any given CSV in general. Yeah. 
just like a JSON parser should just turn it into data structures that you're familiar with in this philosophy, right? It should not try to turn it into something else and give you like coercion to some other type or things like that. Because you want the raw thing. You want to look at it in its pure form before you start making assumptions about it because you really don't know. And so I do agree that like at some point you need to check this stuff at the border, but there's a step in there where you're in development, you're programming the system and you're discovering what you have. At that point, if you have already closed the gates to anything that doesn't match, you're going to have this loop of, okay, oh, it print out the JSON and try to parse it. And like, oh no, it doesn't like that zero. My parser doesn't like <laughs> the zero. So like, let me make it let me convert the zero into an empty list, whatever it is. And then, oh no, I, this time I got a null. And like that could be hours in to a run. You know, you could be like processing every post on this WordPress blog, right? Two hours in and it's like, oh, I failed. I found something I haven't seen before. And like, what do you do th with that? Whereas you can, I don't know, kind of handle it a little better if you have this raw thing. You know, you can put it in a dead letter list. You can, you know, do all sorts of stuff. I find this attitude of typing it and putting a guard at the border is like missing. Like, but, but maybe you want to let them in. Like you need a second, you know, you need a holding room for that person who's trying to get in. Cause like <laughs> you, you need that data. Like you can't skip the post and you can't. And then failing on a two-hour run is not an option either, especially if there's side effects. Like, you know, you see, do you see what I'm saying? I want to break it down further. So, okay, okay. So you mentioned like, let's say you get some data in, and, and you're like, partway through a two-hour run, and like one of these things comes in, and it's not what you expected. So, one of the things I'm curious about is like, so you mentioned like, hey, let's let's handle it later. Do you mean like you get an error somewhere? You literally like pause execution you're like i'm gonna go in and like oh, repel no, in no, and no. like write some code no you're, okay i'm, I'm is... not yeah i mean some languages can do that but closure cannot like okay you know throws an exception and it's like what do you want to do like to the user right, right, right the exception yeah. comes all the way up the stack and it's like what do you want to do like right. some languages... there, there are some lists yeah. that do this yeah, and, yeah, yeah yeah okay but not clo no, closure right. can't do that so when you say handle it later do you mean like let's use the example of like you're expecting a boolean but zero comes through so in the decoder style, you would say, handle that at the border, translate it into false right away. And then from then on, you know, you have either true or false. Right. But if you didn't, if you hadn't done that, that's what I'm talking about. Right. If you so, hadn't expected the zero. So what does handle it later look like specifically? Is it like at some point in your code, you have a conditional, like you're like, if, you know, this thing is true or false or zero, do something different. I, I guess I want to understand what does the handling it later look like? Handling it later looks like let's say i tried to parse a string as an int and it doesn't parse okay my code doesn't know what to do you know whatever loop is going through all the posts i'd have a try catch block catch that and be like okay save this json to a collection mutable thing and keep going keep trying and you know re probably record what you tr we're trying to do like the exception, right? Couldn't parse the int and then uh, keep going. And then I'll come back to it, to my REPL and print out whatever's in that collection. Like how many things were in there and like, what? Well, show me the first one. Oh, I see. I didn't parse. I thought it would be an int, but sometimes it's empty string, you know? Okay. Um, I see. Yeah. 
So I'm, th I'm thinking like, what would I do in Elm? And I think in a similar vein, my typical workflow for the handle it at the border approach would be whatever that string is that I expect to be an int. Like, let's say it's a, it's a coming out of JSON string. I would put in my decoder, okay, I expect this thing to be an int. And if it's not, then I will get a decoding error. And I usually wouldn't do it later, like come back to a later queue. I would usually just send it to an error reporting service like Bugsnag or something. Uh, Granted, but there's no reason I couldn't do it that way. There's nothing innate. You could to write the, it to a file or, you know, something like that right. to, to yeah. process later. There's nothing innate to the border decoding, I think, that would prevent me from doing that. I just right. like historically haven't. <laughs> and I think that there's maybe a little bit more that's not exactly types, but we do a lot of nil punning right in closure what nil punning is is that nil which is basically a null pointer it has meaning in the different contexts so abstractly if you just ask what does nil mean it means no answer when you ask a question and you get back nil it means i i couldn't do i couldn't answer this but if you like use nil as a boolean it would be false and if you use nil as a collection, it would be an empty collection, right? And so it has these meanings already. I mean, this is really subtle stuff because you never write exactly the same program in, in different languages, right? It's not like Haskell and Clojure have the same semantics, but one has a type system and one doesn't. Like it's not <laughs> right. like yeah, Haskell, it's not, Haskell's not typed Clojure. <laughs> right, sure. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's something going on where we are always aware that because also we're in Java land, right? We're on the JVM. We're always aware that anything could return nil at any point, right? And so we're always thinking about that case. And often it's handled by the, the standard library. Like if you give it a, a nil, it, it sort of like does what you would have it do anyway if you were defensively yes. checking. Like yeah. if you can cat nil to a list, it'll just give you the original list, right? Like that kind of thing. And so you don't have to, you're like, okay, nil is handled. I don't, you know, that's fine. If I have a nil, it means they don't have an answer. It means empty list, like basically, right? So you just do that kind of calculus. And then sometimes you're like, okay, I wanted a string, but I got a nil. Well, that's just an empty string. Sometimes you want another string, you know, like no name, right? If you ask for the first name, you want something else to display. But very often, like if you're concatenating strings, you're like, yeah, nil is just an empty string. It's a good point about the differences between the languages, but also the cultural differences in how things are done. Like, for example, in Clojure, it sounds like people are more aware of defensive nil checking, but also are aware of the fact that in a lot of cases, you don't need to bother because the standard libraries are going to do what you would have written by hand exactly. anyway. I think this idea of when do you do your checking is really interesting because one of the trade-offs that I think about is, so you gave the example of like, yes, technically you can do the translate it into Haskell data types and then mess with it later. But yeah, it's not ergonomic at all because what you end up with is you basically can say, here is some arbitrary JSON data structure. Basically what you're translating it into is like an abstract syntax tree for JSON. That's like, okay, we have either an object or a string or a this or that. And like, and then working with that abstract syntax tree is not fun. <laughs> it's not Exactly. Awesome. And that's what I mean. I'm just saying like, take that JSON thing and make it fun. Just like write a map a JSON map that is partial. If you print it out, like as a human, you can see, oh, that's an array. I can do this. It'll be safe. That's what we do in the untyped world. And it's fun. Yeah, sometimes you get an exception. Like, who cares? Just 
try to you know look at it and be like oh yeah i i thought it was an array but it was a string <laughs> the thing is though is you need a whole library a whole suite to make it fun because otherwise you're constantly writing your own like well if it's a you know pattern match is it an array if it's an array then map over it otherwise error and like you're writing that all the time and you want to just be like of course it should just error like that's what I'm going to want it to do because it, no, it doesn't make <laughs> sense to do anything else. So I really think that I would have been happy to have that because, I mean, I felt like I was writing stuff like that anyway. That's where the ecosystem kind of starts to play a role. I'm going to try and like summarize the, some of the trade-offs between like the Haskell approach, the Elm approach, and the Clojure approach with the caveat that like it's not like these are the only ways you can do it in right. each of them, but I'm going to say these are the most popular ways of doing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Haskell, the most popular way is to say, I want to derive my JSON deserialization and just say, it's going to be exactly the shape that I expect it to be. And if it's not, give me an error. And so the, the upside of that and is- And sometimes quite, I want that too, just to be clear, sure, enclosure. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you're in control of both sides, yes. you're like, I know, yeah, that is great. <laughs> or if you are in control of the protocol, so like right, some exactly, client yeah. is going to use it and you're like, I want you to know that you sent me the wrong thing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'm not going to be lenient. And then you make all these, you know, sloppy mistakes <laughs> yeah. in your JSON. Right. So it's quite concise. And then once you've gotten it validated, you now have something that you can really rely on because the type checkers, you know, sort of got your back from there. The Elm approach of writing a decoder is more verbose than that, but it's also significantly more flexible where you can say, okay, here I actually will accept either a string or a number or this or that. And here's how I'm going to translate all those into the type that I expect. And then from there, you have everything that you need. And then the closure approach is the most flexible because it's not trying to do any upfront validation. It's just like, I'm going to translate these reliably 100% of the time into data types that I can work with. But from then on, you the trade-off is you don't get guarantees about that. You now have like if you the don't get string... static guarantees. Right. And we will do the encoder thing. Oh, enclosure, really? Yeah. Like you get this WordPress thing and it's like, wow, there's too much junk in here that I don't need. And I want to normalize it to something that I can rely on later. And so yeah, like as you learn the crazy data values you could get back, you start to say, okay, I just want everything to either be true or false for this value. <laughs> I don't want to have to <laughs> yeah. have an if statement everywhere, like, oh, if it's an empty list or if it's a zero or a null. Oh my goodness, it could be anything. Right, yeah. I think the reason that I gravitate towards the Elm approach there is that a thing that I've been bitten by in the past is not validating it really strictly early on. And then rather than getting an error report, what I instead get is a bug. It's like the zero or the string or whatever, like, passes through and it ends up getting used in a way where maybe it crashes and I, I figure out what the problem was that it was traced back to the JSON. But oftentimes it's gone through so many pipes and tunnels and sure, you know, passageways. Yeah. I'm like, why could it possibly be this here? And it ultimately turns out, oh, it was because the JSON gave me something I wasn't expecting. I didn't make that connection or like it took me a while to track that down. I wonder about that. That's one of the things I still think about. So here's the thing. Because I'm not doing strict typing, that's on my mind all the time. I could have a weird value here that I'm not expecting. Whereas in Haskell, it's impossible. So you just, you, you don't think about that. Yeah. Which to be fair, I, I like that peace of mind. <laughs> no, and it's, and it's very freeing. You know, you're like, yeah. I have a type called 
non-zero integer. <laughs> I don't know where I got it from. <laughs> I don't know how it got made, but I'm pretty sure I can divide by this number, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm just going to pretend like I can, right? And you have a pretty good guarantee. But in closure, we're constantly facing, I guess you can call them bugs, but we're constantly interactively at the REPL being surprised by the data that we're getting. And so we are, I guess, coding very defensively all the time. And of course, those are things you have to like learn over time. And it takes a while to see the tricks, right? Because sure. I don't even know the tricks I do that work. I hear other people say like, oh man, I got this bug and I, you know, where did it come from? And I'm like, well, look at your code. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, if you just did it this way, there would be no bug, right? And so that person is like pining for a type system, but I'm saying like, your code is really not idiomatic. There's a lot of habits that closure programmers have that avoid those bugs. I'm not trying to say it's better, but like, it might be one of the reasons why I'm not encountering as many bugs. I've got the type discipline from Haskell. I've got all these idioms from Clojure, and they're together avoiding the bugs. I definitely know what you mean with that. I had, you know, speaking of using like functional style CoffeeScript, I had a past job where we were using CoffeeScript on the front end. This was like more than a decade ago now. So, I mean, it was, you didn't have all the tools that you had today <laughs> as far as like typed front end stuff. But I do remember very distinctly that we had one person on the team who had come in from a Haskell background. And even though we were using the, like basically pretend it's Haskell, but it's just actually just CoffeeScript technique, he was like really struggling with it because for exactly that reason, because he didn't have the habits of like checking defensively for things. And so for me, I was like, oh, this is fine. And he was just like really struggling with it. He's like, man, I this is like really hard for me. I feel like I'm, I'm not doing a good job at this. I'm like bad at my job suddenly because even though we're using this style, there's all these extra things that I just don't... You have to keep in your head. I'm not yeah. familiar with this. I'm used to just like being able to rely on these things and I don't have that anymore. I mean, to me, that says two things. One is that one, it definitely makes a difference if you have that mindset or not. I know that it's like difficult to find research that you can draw really good conclusions on this from, but it does seem like there has not been research successfully demonstrating that like static type systems really prevent good bugs. And before anyone listening says, I've got a study for you that proves this, please go read Dan Liu's article about all of these studies yeah. <laughs> where he basically points out that like all of these studies that have come out, like unless the study came out in the past like year, maybe like, like 2020 plus, because I, I forget when he wrote that article, but like Dan Liu's article about like research into like papers on, on and research into static type systems and like their efficacy. And it's like, he just tears them apart. They're, <laughs> they're, yes. they're really again, not saying things like reliable. And then again, even if one might show a small thing, because some of them do, right? But they're always specific type systems. You know, they're not comparing, I don't know. I, sometimes it's like, well, it's Java with an IDE that knows the type system, right? Like it's stuff like that. It's like, that's not fair. You're giving yeah. them a better tool. No, to be fair, anecdotally, like without having any research to back it up, I do feel that like, if nothing else, I can compare like at work at, at No Red Inc. We have a big legacy Rails code base and a Haskell code base that are coexisting. And it's like, 
the same team of people wrote most of the code in, in or, or all the code in like both of those systems. And most of the people on the team started out with a Ruby background and then learned Haskell. So it's not like they were unfamiliar with the, how to like defensively check for nil. And I'll grant you that Ruby is not closure. And Ruby also, I know, does not have like the nil punting stuff that you just talked about. It's not, I, I don't think Ruby is at the same level of like gracefully automatically handling nil that closure is. But I will say, I mean, we have, both of them are hooked up to error reporting services. And in terms of like how many errors we get and like how much they crash per line of code, it's just like way different. Like Ruby yeah. is like all yeah. the time crashing and like, and the Haskell code just isn't. And how much is the type system and how much is the... Like the API, yeah. that's a fair point, yeah. right? It has to be said that it's also not like Haskell is typed Ruby. <laughs> right, exactly. And the ecosystem, Ruby is huge. And so there's a wider variance of people in it. And so the libraries that they're writing also have that wider variance of like bug proofness and design. We started using sorbet types, which is like type Ruby uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. for some of that. I'd be actually interested to check How out. Do like I, I don't think anyone's, we, we've liked it enough to keep using it. <laughs> so that's, that's an endorsement right there. I actually would be kind of curious if we, like, I don't think anyone's ever done this analysis, is going back and looking at the endpoints that we've added Sorbet to and comparing the error rates to the ones where we didn't. I don't think anyone's done that, but I mean, we have the logs, we could do that. But to your point, like, yeah, you're using Sorbet, but then you use this third-party dependency that's not using Sorbet. And so how trustworthy are those types, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of considerations there. I think there's a lot of opportunity now because of these type systems for dynamically typed languages to do research that's kind of apples for apples, right? So you can do Ruby and Ruby with Sorbet. You can do (laughs) JavaScript and JavaScript with TypeScript. And, you know, you're not going to be able to generalize it to type systems are better or worse, right? Or the same, right? Waste of time. Haskell is not typed Ruby, but typed Ruby actually is typed Ruby. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so maybe you could have a pretty good research thing there. Even still, though, like, I mean, like you said, first of all, those claims wouldn't generalize to other languages, I don't think. Or, or like, it would be really hard to do that. You have to be really careful. But also, yeah. I mean... They don't generalize. Yeah. The, the ecosystem, right, is still a big factor there where it's like, yeah, you have typed Ruby in your code base, but you're building that on top of a huge ecosystem of probably untyped right. But Ruby. you could at least give it back this scientifically backed advice of whether you as a company should adopt Sorbet. Sure. For yeah. your code base. If you wanted to try and do an experiment like that, I think probably the best thing you could do would be a lot of libraries are now TypeScript first in the JavaScript mm-hmm, ecosystem. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I bet if you took TypeScript and then you tried to have like a team use TypeScript and all TypeScript ecosystem libraries and another team do the same thing with the same libraries, except only use them without the type checking. Right. Like strip out all the type annotations and then just have it just be straight JavaScript, but using actual TypeScript libraries. So then it's like, as apples to apples as it could be. But then again, like you said, in that world, those libraries and you know all of the code that you've written will be written assuming there's no need for any defensive checks because it's TypeScript. So it's really hard to do an apples to apples comparison, I think. That's right. That's right. Even well, in that world. But see, that's, that's kind of part of it, right? If the type system is there, if you're expecting to have to eventually type check, like you're going to think differently. Right. And that yeah. might be part of the advantage of it. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, it caught a bug. It's like, no, I didn't even write the bug because I knew that I had to like be stricter with the types. Another aspect that's underrated here and like speaking about differences between like Haskell and Ruby and Clojure is that like 
there's a different, even if you took away the type systems, there's definitely a different style that people use to write each of these things. And actually, even like Haskell and Elm is a good example. Like, for lack of a better term, I, I think Elm tends very much towards like simplicity, both from the implementation perspective, as well as from the types perspective. If you look at like a Haskell package that does a thing and an Elm package that does the same thing, you're not going to see as many like type variables in the Elm right. <laughs> version. And you're not going to see like higher kind of types and stuff like that. Right. But also similarly, if you compare like Ruby and Clojure, Ruby does a lot more metaprogramming, uh, like culturally, there's a lot more sort of magic, for lack of a better term. It would be not only harder to put types on that because things can be kind of shifting, but also I think it would be harder to adopt the discipline that you mentioned using when you write closure, which is to think about what type is this returning? Because again, that could also vary based on like metaprogramming things. And maybe it's hard to figure out, like to answer the question, like what actual type is this method returning compared to something like closure that's like sort of intentionally more right, straightforward. Right. Interesting. I have a project in the back of my mind that I want to work on one day, which is to write a type system for not closure, or a subset of closure. Yeah, I feel like the attitude of like, let's try to type how like all these existing closure programs. I think that that's like a fool's errand. In the end, it's going to be so complex because you have to deal with all the dynamic stuff that people do that it's not going to be valuable anymore. It's just going to tell you like, yeah, your program works as expected because it's closure. <laughs> but what I do want is a subset that is easy to type that once I understand exactly the algorithm I want and like what are its inputs and outputs and all, all this stuff, I can lock it down and say like, okay, it's going to be this very strict subset of closure that's easy to type that I can make sure it's still closure. It'll still run without the type system, but it will also type check. Yeah. And so you turn I it on, like let's say for one module, right? And you say like, you know, you annotate it and everything, give it the types and it'll say, oh, you can't really do this dynamic thing where you're like, I don't know, parsing a string and, you know, stringly typed stuff. No, stop <laughs> doing that. You can't do that and things like that. That's an interesting approach. I mean, it seems like most type checkers try to just like do their best with, with all that stuff. And that seems like it's better for adoption, but less good in terms of like how much you can trust what it what comes out the other side which is kind of the whole thing that i like about type checkers is like you said earlier all this stuff that i can just get out of my brain and stop thinking about <laughs> right because i'm like oh yeah this has been taken care of for me and i think it might have some adoption in the closure world we're very into like a library being done people are like oh it hasn't been committed to for four years it's like, yeah, but everyone's using it. Like, if it's, right. it's done. Like, there's no yeah. new features. What else would it need? We have, like, implicitly that that same kind of thing in the Elm community, but but it's not consistently celebrated, I would say. Hmm. You'll it's see people say, like, hey, are people going to be worried that, like, no one's committed to this library in, like, more than, like, a couple of years? And then other people are like, yeah, but, like, what should we change about it? Like, every, right. yeah, everybody loves it. Like, right. it's, it's we're doing great. Like, yeah. what, what's the problem? It's a JSON and, parser. <laughs> JSON's the same. Like, what... <laughs> What could be better? And like, actually, that's an interesting example because recently someone took on the task of making our JSON parser faster. So it's much faster now. So yeah, that was a change, right? Sure, like, yeah. It's probably going to stay like it is for another five years. I'm a big fan of like, 
once something gets sufficiently mature, just make it faster and that's it. Yeah. Don't change the yeah, API. Yeah, 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 like yeah. you don't like, I mean, if there's some really compelling reason to, okay, fine. But like, hopefully over time, the percentage of your time spent performance optimizing would just approach one. <laughs> that's why, right. that's my preference. Yeah. Well, actually it's interesting in the closure, actually core code base, there's even a reticence to do that. There's like a reticence to change the code. Kind of like, oh, let's refactor. It looks ugly. You know, people have that kind of attitude a lot about uh-huh. code that they didn't write and that's old. <laughs> and Ritiki, the creator and you know maintainer of Clojure, he's like, no, like just leave it. It works. Don't touch it. And what's interesting is this attitude. You can see it. Someone made a, this graph of lines of code as they change over time. And the closure one is very layered. It's like there's these old lines of code that just have not changed ever. Once huh. they stabilized at the beginning, they're just like straight across. And then there's another layer with the, you know, version 1.2 came out and there's like these other layer that comes in. It just hasn't changed. And then you compare it to something like Scala. It's just constantly shifting. These It looks like geological strata, you know, geological layers. But like there was a lot of seismic activity, a lot of earthquakes and, you know, plates going on top of each other, just like constant churn. I think it shows in the stability of closure, just always works. And it it's one of the reasons why you can just leave a library to just be and just work because the language doesn't change that much. And it's only adding new stuff. It's not like going back and saying, oh, we made a mistake here. If we made a mistake, if there's a mistake in closure, you leave it, but you might make a new thing. Like deprecate it, say like, hey, don't use this anymore. Use sure. this new thing. But yes, yeah, but it's exactly. still there. In, yeah, so so your old stuff still works. Exactly, exactly. Which is interesting because now there's all this new stuff. And Rich Hickey says all the time, like, if I had made this new stuff first, all the other stuff would be based on this new stuff. But I didn't do it in that order. And so this is yeah, what you get. As, as it happens, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's similar to like in, in Haskell where they came up with, you know, map and other stuff before they had the functor type classes. So they yeah. didn't have functor yet. And of course, map over a list should be fmap. Like it should be the same, right? But it was written first and they haven't gone back to change I don't think that's because of a deep commitment to backwards compatibility. I think that's like, because there's other stuff. That, well, whatever. Anyway, I actually think they should just make that one consistent. Also, I think they should all be map, not fmap, but that's neither. Sure. Here, yeah. fmap is a, <laughs> a hack, but it was an addition. The same, same kind of thing. I get it like at the outset, but it's like, I don't know. Like they make breaking language changes. Why not include that in one of them? Like, That's true. <laughs> that's true. It's not like it would be a big, difficult find replace job. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about a bunch of different stuff. Anything else we should make sure to talk about? I do want to talk about my book. Oh, sure. And I don't want to be pegged as like the type versus dynamic type guy. <laughs> <laughs> so my book is called Grokking Simplicity. It's all about functional programming for beginners, beginners to functional programming. So I know your audience is probably like pretty advanced already in functional programming. No, but I don't think that's a safe assumption, no? actually. No? Oh, okay. I mean, I think most people who listen to this podcast are familiar with functional programming, but I think that you'd be surprised. There's there's lots of different variety in, in like how much experience people have. Nice. Okay, good. Well, I had like a functional programming meetup that I ran in town and 
I would always get like the first three months, it was always new people coming in being like, what is functional programming? Why should I? So we had this discussion over and over and over again. And there would always be like, well, what should I read? What's a good resource? And for the people who were like curious or like they had seen, you know, they look it up on Wikipedia and they're like, that doesn't really seem helpful to have no side effects. Like I need side effects. Like this is not practical. I wanted to write a book for them that like helped guide them into like making sense of the Wikipedia article basically. And I feel like we as a community have kind of neglected those people. I don't want to blame anybody. I'm not doing that. But like functional programming, a lot of it is academic, certainly until very recently. So a lot of it is very inaccessible. Like even academic writing is not made to be like, oh, I'm a PhD student. Like I have this intro papers and then this, no, it's like they just throw the hard stuff right at you and you have to get it from your professor or your other grad students around. Anyway, I wrote this book. It tries to break it down, the journey much, like start the journey much sooner. Like a lot of places will say like, oh, let's learn map, filter, and reduce. And then just as a, like a throwaway sentence, they're like, and you should pass it a pure function. A pure function doesn't have side effects. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Most people get lost there. The whole idea of pure function is not obvious to people who aren't used to it. And so I have my first eight chapters, first part of the book is basically explaining pure functions and why they're useful and how you get to a pure function if you haven't, and like how do you refactor something into pure functions. And it's taking like, actually saying like, actually functional programming is basically just making a distinction between impure and pure functions. That's like the first step in functional pro- and probably the most useful one. And I don't call them pure and impure functions. I call them calculations are the pure functions and actions are the impure functions. And then there's also data, which is like just inert stuff that, you know, it doesn't run. The whole first part is about actions, calculations, and data. Then we get into, you know, map, filter, reduce, and higher order functions. So it sounds like someone could use this book as a way to learn the sort of like functional programming style. And it's not necessarily coupled to one particular language. That's right. All the examples are in JavaScript. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I found when I was looking around, the functional programming books would really heavily lean on a functional language. And so it always seemed like, well, these are features of this language that I'm learning, not a style, right? Or, I mean, I've also seen books that are like functional programming in JavaScript. But then I would guess that not having read any of those books, but I would assume that those tend to get into like pretty JavaScript specific stuff too. That's right. These libraries and, you know, yeah. Right. And this is language agnostic. I use JavaScript because it was readable by most people. Yeah. It's probably the most widely known language. Exactly. And like, if you don't know JavaScript, but you know Java or C, like you can read it. Yeah, it's got the curly braces and the the if (laughs) and the for, you know, it's got everything. It's not JavaScript specific. I emphasize that several times in the book and people are still like, (laughs) like, why do you, you know, this is a JavaScript functional programming book. Like, no, it's not about JavaScript. (laughs) I also found a lot of the books. I like, here I am critiquing the books. This is a reason why I wrote it that I couldn't recommend these other books. A lot of the books were just doing like Lambda Calculus gymnastics. 
it's like, look, all the currying, isn't this fun? And you can write this. And like, yeah, that's not, I mean, it's fun. I like that stuff too, but it's not the practical industrial stuff that we, that is useful. What's useful. Right. Your, your audience is like people who want to get stuff done and they think that functional programming might be a way to help them get stuff done more effectively, but they're not sure or they, they're not, they, they don't know how to like get started with it in a practical exactly. sense. Yeah. Exactly. And it's not just about like, you know, first class functions, anonymous functions, that kind of stuff. We get to that, but really the core of it is identifying that side affecting functions are hard. They cause bugs and problems. <laughs> and so you want to move as much of your code as possible into pure functions. And then well, how do you do that? Because that's not obvious either. Like a lot of people think about their code is like, well, I have to take this step and then this step and this step. What else is there? Like, and so I give some examples like, you know, you might be doing a for loop reading from the database. So that's a side effect. You're reading from the database and then you loop through each one and you send an email to that customer, right? So you're doing all of this is all actions. Like, where's the calculation? Well, how do you produce the text of that email? That's a calculation. It has inputs and it has outputs. You could actually read in the whole database, the whole table, one go, and generate all the emails in one go. And then have this really tiny loop that just sends them one at a time, right? So you have this big calculation. So most of your code is in calculation. And then your action code is really simple and clear. And you can test this calculation much more easily. And so we go into you know, all sorts of stuff like that. That's like, these are things that non-functional programmers don't get from, you know, reading a random article on the internet about functional programming, that a lot of the stuff that you're doing could actually be pure. And then, then it's easily testable. You don't have to set up a database. You don't have to fake an email server and like all that stuff. <laughs> Very cool. All right. So grokking simplicity, uh, where grokking can people find it? Anywhere. Amazon, it's on Manning. Oh, don't we have a code for your listeners? Yes. So we have a, what is this? A 35% discount code. Yeah. Check out the, the description for 35% off. Grokking oh, yeah. Simplicity. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, of course. It was fun. 